wander past your house Because I think of you I always think of you Seasons changing I remember How you loved me Good morning, you're listening to Week on 3 with me, Janice Wong, where we put together all the can't-miss interviews from the past week here on Radio 3. In the next half hour, we will get expert analysis on what this year's Oscars mean for Asian cinema and hear about how reading comics can enhance multimedia literacy for kids. But first, we look at how some international companies here are trying to do their part for the environment. On Monday's Trash Talk, Marcy Trent Long spoke to Michael Yates, the Senior Vice President and Managing Director for PNG Hong Kong, about the collaborative effort with Watson's Hong Kong to help recycle plastic. Mr Yates told Marcy more about Phase 1 of the Plastic Reborn Initiative. So we try to keep this as simple as possible. So consumers in Hong Kong, citizens can bring back any personal care bottle to any Watson's store in Hong mm. Kong. So not just P&G. Not just P&G. Um, so our yeah, brands yeah. Would, would be a good place to start, but <laughs> other brands are also welcome. So they can bring them back to any Watson's store. Watson staff will give the, the consumers who bring them back uh, e-stamp points as a, as a reward, and they can be used against future product purchases, incentives, etc., Watson's will then collect all of these bottles from all of their stores into one central location. Then we have a partner called The Loops, who collects all of the bottles from Watson's central location and will do the first stage of sorting to make sure that what we're going to send to New Life Plastics, who are the ultimate recycler, is HDPE and PET. And then, and also Loops will, will weigh the amount of plastic we we've received so we have a record of what's coming in so we can make sure that what's coming in we can track all the way through the system then new life plastics will clean extrude crush and at the end of the day you end up with plastic uh, pellets and flakes of hdpe and, and pet now that will go back into the um, circular economy uh, and particularly in the context of PET where there isn't a market for it in Hong Kong, it will go primarily into Europe. But one of the things we also want to do is we want to try and find a second life for the plastic within Hong Kong um, and try and turn it into some form of public good or civic good. So for example, in other markets, what we've seen work quite well is the plastic pellets are turned into artificial football pitches. Right. Or into playground furniture. So we're going to run competitions over the coming weeks and months to understand what are the best ideas that are most relevant to, to Hong Kong and how we, we can reborn the, the plastic for Hong Kongers. Okay, and to actually use it here rather right. than having to sell it off to Europe, right? Correct, because we don't have any manufacturing plants as Procter & Gamble within Hong Kong, so we right. can't feed it into our P&G factory right. system within Hong Kong. But right. what we can do is we can keep it in Hong Kong and give it a second life in the context of those ideas I mentioned. Right. And the, I mean, that's kind of the recycling plant's job, right? Yep. Is to figure out 
which market to send the PET and HTP right. to, right? Right. So you guys are doing the good job of just getting them the product, which is awesome Yes. for us consumers. You know, it was interesting because you, you mentioned that you did a lot of uh, research on local consumer mm. recycling behavior that led you to, to uh, take this initiative. So what did you find out about in that research? What did Hong Kongers think? I think there are two long-standing points of feedback we hear from our research and one new emerging point which is uh, which I think is related to the pandemic the two long-standing points is one um, consumers want to have a broader more easily accessible set of places where they can deposit their bottles yeah? right yeah. Um, they don't want it to be inconvenient they want it to be part of their regular daily lives and that's yeah. why the Watson store network for example really helps make it simple um, the the second challenge that consumers have is there is a concern that once they've handed their bottles over they may not get recycled <laughs> right um, so introducing transparency into the process is something that is really important for us and that's why with partnership with Watson's the loops and new life plastics we're able to have that transparency from the beginning all the way through to, to the end. Now, what's emerged, Marcy, I think as part of the pandemic, there, there is very much a stronger sense of wanting to protect uh, uh, and keep safe one's family, but also that extends to wanting to do the right thing for the community in which people live in. There's a togetherness mm. that typically tends to, to form um, when pandemics, etc., occur. Um, so we, we're seeing more and more of a willingness from consumers to want to do good right in the context of their consumers we just need to make it easy for them and build trust um so you've set a goal of over 200,000 bottles recovered per year in 2023 that's a lot of numbers <laughs> but uh, <laughs> i mean is this mostly hdpe packaging it just how does that compare with kind of what's out there in terms of okay. bottles and stuff. So, a good question. So, we started with personal care bottles because it's mostly HDPE and PET. Okay. Which is widely recyclable. Now, if consumers bring back other bottles of other beauty products, then our partner, The Loops, will, will take that out at their, at their collection process and, and move that to a couple of other recycling facilities in Hong Kong who can recycle other types of plastic. Okay. And New Life Plastics just focus on the, the big job exactly. of the, the pet and the Okay, HDPE. but they will take back anything, uh, any personal care product that's on the whole range of one to seven? Yeah, so we, we, well, we're asking for, for people just to bring back personal care. So shampoos, conditioners, uh, bath wash. wash, body wash, etc. But if anything else comes into the, the, the collection points, which it will, then we have a process I with see. the loops to make sure that that finds a... A nice recycling point. And that leads us into uh, Plastics Reborn Phase 2 yeah. and Phase 3. And what do those look like? So Phase 2, Phase 3, more types of um, beauty care bottles we'd hope to be able to take into the system. When does the program actually start? Is it, it started. It yeah. started. You, okay. can, you can take your personal care bottles into Watson's this afternoon. If you have time, get some e-stamp points and uh, we're off and running. That's Michael Yates from PNG Hong Kong speaking on Trash Talk.
A couple of days ago, Hong Kong took one of its biggest steps yet towards returning to normalcy, as the government kicked off its vaccine bubble initiative by reopening bars and entertainment venues, while easing restrictions for restaurants. But at the same time, we're seeing warning signs in the first local transmissions of highly transmissible coronavirus variants, and in the increasingly desperate epidemic situation in India. So is it really the right time to relax social distancing measures here? That's a question Mike Weeks asked epidemiologist Benjamin Cowling on our Hong Kong Today program. I think what we've, we've experienced in the past year is that when case numbers are very low, it's okay to relax for a while. But if case numbers start to come up, those measures will need to come back because what we're doing with those measures at an early stage of, of case numbers rising is avoiding, averting the kind of scenario that India are now facing. Uh, because if numbers go up to 10 a day, it's okay, 20 a day is okay, but once you get above 50, 100, hundreds of cases a day, then it becomes a real challenge for hospitals to deal with. And as you, you, you just uh, heard on, on the segment just now, that once there's too many patients for the hospital, it's really a big, big problem for the patients and for the hospitals. But are we seeing something new in India? Is this a variant of the virus? Why are we seeing like 350,000 infections a day? It can be explained without the need to, to say that it's a new variant. It can be explained because we've seen the same thing happen a year ago in northern Italy, in New York and in other parts of the world. Um, it, it doesn't need to be a new variant to, to have this kind of impact. It can just be large numbers of infections and exponentially rising incidents. So case numbers going up exponentially from week to week. Having said that, there, are, uh, there is a new variant in India which we haven't yet been able to analyze to see what's the characteristics, how does it compare to the other variants we know about. Maybe there's some of that in the mix, but we can explain what's happening in India without needing to say that it's some new kind of new variant that, that's even more dangerous. But as you say, it, it demonstrates the very real problems that the world still faces. That's right. Most of the world is still very vulnerable to this kind of thing happening. I think Israel is maybe the one place in the world that can kind of relax now because they've got up to a high vaccine coverage. They're, they're pretty safe now that what's happening in India, what happened before in Italy and New York, that won't be able to happen anymore in Israel because of their high level of vaccine coverage. The U.S., though, has announced new guidelines for people who've had their coronavirus jabs, uh, saying they should be allowed to get together in groups uh, outside without face masks. Are, are jabs really the panacea, though? Is it going to stop the, 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 the virus? Yeah, that's right. I think once we're vaccinated, then there's really not a lot more to wait for. So I'm, I'm quite impressed by the, the quote from the governor of Florida quite recently, uh, bemoaning that vaccinated people don't act like they're immune. He said, if, if you're vaccinated, you're immune, so act immune. Uh, let's get back to normal, because uh, otherwise, what more are we waiting for after we've been vaccinated? And the easing here, the reopening of bars, restaurants, that's all conditional on people being vaccinated. We heard earlier uh, from Alan Zeman saying it's a good thing. Uh, people of Hong Kong need to get vaccinated. A similar uh, message was given by the health secretary. Do you think that's the most important part of this latest easing? it's really good for Hong Kong if more and more people choose to get vaccinated because that's our pathway back to normal. So let's see how well the latest measures and incentives work. I also saw that it's, it's required for vaccinated, for, for bars and restaurants if they choose this advanced option, uh, to use the app, the contact tracing app. And so I, I can imagine in a restaurant where everyone's been vaccinated, all the staff 
and all the customers have been vaccinated or in a bar when all the staff and all the customers are vaccinated. That may be the least important place to use the contact tracing app because everybody's vaccinated, everybody's immune. There's not going to be any transmission. So insisting on using the app may not be the, the most important place to insist on using the app. It may be other places where there's higher risk of transmission that it's important to have the app so the contact tracing can be done better. Okay, at the moment, uh, vaccine coverage in Hong Kong is at about 10%. Uh, What sort of levels, we've talked about this before, but what sort of levels do we need to see to uh, say that Hong Kong would be in a similar situation to Israel and be safe? Well, Israel is now 60%, I think, 60% of people with at least one dose. Most of those have had two doses. In Hong Kong, we're 10% with one dose, 5% with two doses. And even less than that, fully vaccinated with 14 days after their second dose. Uh, what we need in Hong Kong to be like Israel is going beyond 60% because Israel 60% is just with BioNTech. We're using a mix of BioNTech and Sinovac. So in Hong Kong, ultimately, I think we'd have to have almost everybody vaccinated with a mix of some people getting BioNTech, some people getting Sinovac in order to be really reassured that we're, we're safe. Um, otherwise, there'll be a, a challenge, particularly for people who haven't been vaccinated or who can't be vaccinated. Um, but it, for now, I think the priority is just to see the vaccination rate going up and think about ways to encourage people to get vaccinated, the people that are hesitant. Think of ways that they could be encouraged to get vaccinated and think of ways that maybe incentives. I, I think one of the things that we've really got to look at carefully is relaxing the quarantine for people who arrive back in Hong Kong who've been fully vaccinated because they don't pose nearly as much risk as arriving travellers who haven't been vaccinated. If someone has been vaccinated, they pose a much, much lower risk to Hong Kong. So having a relaxation of the on-arrival quarantine, I think, would already make a big difference. That would encourage a lot of people to get vaccinated. That would bring the vaccine coverage up, and then Hong Kong would be safer as a result. That's Professor Benjamin Cowling, an epidemiologist with the University of Hong Kong School of Public Health speaking on Hong Kong Today. It goes without saying that reading books is good for you. But what about comics? Long dismissed by some as frivolous or juvenile, there has nonetheless been a wealth of serious work published over the years that many appreciate just as much as traditional literary classics. One of the arts firm proponents is graphic novelist Ru Xu, one of the authors of this year's Young Readers Festival that just ended yesterday. She told Noreen Mir on our 123 show that comics teaches us a new form of literacy that fits right into the digital age. The thing about comics is that um, they are able to teach you a sort of literacy that you don't necessarily get with just um, textbooks because it teaches you how to read the context of images with um, text as well. And um, as you as you probably realize in today's uh, internet society, um, memes and all of those things, it's all about the context. So to understand this new language that's developing online, you know, teaching children very early on how to both read and understand and interpret uh, the idea of images with text to enhance each other, um, it's going to be very important 
later on in life. Absolutely. And it sort of make you a stronger reader, if that's even a phrase, you know, just the way to link how the, the conversation and, the, and, and how the boxes are linked um, to, to tell the, the, the story. I, of, I often find comics actually quite difficult <laughs> to read and you have to sort of master, you know, which box to jump to um, mm-hmm. when, when you're yeah, reading. Yeah. And um, different, um, different regions that specialize in comics have different, you know, languages in terms of how they make comics. Like um, when people read Japanese manga, um, they read it differently than how they would read American comics. Absolutely. And same as how, you know, they would read it differently from French comics. Uh, exactly. Um, it's not uh-huh. just like the People language. who read comics are smarter. <laughs> well, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not just the language. It's also just how, you know, the, the panels are laid out on the page. Um, like, you know, uh, European comics, you know, sometimes they'll have 10 or more panels on a page, whereas... Um, for, you know, American style comics, maybe around 10 or fewer, a little fewer. Um, American comics have, um, tend to have a lot more text in them. And then there's, um, well, American superhero comics. And then there's manga, which is, you know, tends to be four to six panels, um, in general. And, um, they, how do I say this? They emphasize more on the story beats and the emotional beats. Mm-hmm. And so like being able to just switch between the different kinds of stories um, and the storytelling is kind of, um, it's kind of cool because it opens up you up to different experiences and different, um, different mindsets that come with, uh, you know, these different regions. Yeah. Well, Rue, you're an illustrator as well as a writer. So mm-hmm. what comes to you first? Does the image come to you first or do you sort of have a line, a conversation, and then the image will then come to you after the line? I mean, how does it work? What's your process typically? Um, sometimes it's uh, the image that comes first. Sometimes it's the, the text that comes first. Um, I, it, it's really hard to say, uh, it really depends on the project. Sometimes I come up with a title and I'm just like, that's really interesting. I wonder what kind of story would go with that title. Um, and that happens a lot actually. That's and so sometimes, crazy. um, I see a character that I really like, um, all my favorite characters die. It's just kind of a curse. So I, <laughs> what, what ends up happening is I kind of just hold on to that character in my mind and then kind of change them and, you know, make them more of like what, what spoke to me sort of like, you know, I kind of bring that out more and more as I think about them. And eventually I turn them into a, a new character. And um, then I start to write a whole new story about them. And um, usually people can't tell who the original you know, character was. I don't think I've had anyone actually point out, oh yeah, Saint does look like so-and-so, doesn't he? <laughs> because he doesn't, he doesn't look like him anymore. I, I don't want to say it's a little embarrassing. <laughs> then why do they die off in the end? I don't know. I think I, it's because um, my favorite characters tend to be the characters that are um, side characters or supporting <laughs> characters. So it's not it's not necessarily that they die off, but they don't get the um, the narrative treatment mm-hmm. that a main character would. Mm-hmm. But also some of them die off because I also like villains. Mm-hmm. So, you know, villains get defeated in the end. Absolutely. Um, let's talk a little bit more about the way you you draw. Are you still sort of drawing by hand, or do you uh, have you moved on digitally these days when you're creating? Well, 
Um, yes, I'm completely dig- digital, wow. um, but I still draw by hand. Um, since you know, since the very beginning, I use uh, Wacom tablets. Um, so I've uh, <laughs> yeah, I've basically used tablets my entire drawing career. Um, wow. It's only recently that I switched to a Cintiq, and that's because um, my friend. Uh, upgraded hers so she let me have her old one and um so tablets uh drawing tablets are basically um you you have your own sort of pencil um and then you have like a board and you can draw on it and it inputs directly into the computer um so when it comes to a cintiq um the the screen is built into the board so you can draw directly onto the screen wow that's really cool technology. And what's it called? Um, they're called drawing tablets or art tablets. Uh, I always recommend everyone sort of look into and research what they want to buy because uh, now there's just so much competition for so many things. That's graphic novelist Ru Shu speaking on our 123 show. As I mentioned, the Young Readers Festival has just ended. But if you're afraid you've missed out, RTHK is following up with our English poetry competition. The deadline is July the 12th. If you're interested, you can get more information on the Radio 3 website. And how can we miss the Oscars on this week's program? Beijing-born Chloe Zhao became the first Asian woman to win the Best Director Oscars with her film Nomadland. On Tuesday's Backchat program, Hugh Chiverton and Ada Wong discussed the awards with film critic Howard Elias. Hugh first asked Howard who has already watched Nomadland if the movie is any good. Uh, yeah. <laughs> okay, all right. Actually, I, I was not that keen on it, mm-hmm. but I saw it on a screener. I saw it at home on a small screen. And as um, um, Frances McDormand said yesterday at the Oscars, see it on the biggest possible screen. And I think she's right. I think you do need to see it on a big screen to appreciate the uh, magnitude. Why? Why, why? Why did it become so popular in 2020? Well, you know, it touches a few nerves right now during this COVID time where there's a lot of loneliness, uh, insularity, uh, there's, you know, a growing wealth gap, not just here and, you know, in America as well. And, and I think people uh, identified with that. Maybe they, maybe they, they saw the lifestyle of these nomads as being a bit sexy and, and maybe some people are considering doing it now. I don't know. Does it paint them in a positive light? Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. It's it's not an easy life these people live. Um, you know, they have they have no insurance. They have you know they have no safety. Their safety net is each other. Um, you know, they're fully reliant upon each other and upon nature, I guess. Um, so it's not a, it's not an easy existence. But I'm, I'm sure some people might find it uh, quite attractive. But you you're sort of slightly disappointed by it. You're not that impressed. Why not? I I didn't think it was the best picture of the year. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But, you know, the Oscars never pick the best, best picture. Mm-hmm. They don't what, have a good track record. What, was, what were the weaknesses, then? Uh, to me, uh, uh, look, it's shot beautifully. i got to mm-hmm. say this. It really is shot beautifully. The performances are all excellent. Look, most of the actors are real nomads. 
um, with the exception of the two lead actors. I think everybody else in the film is a nomad. Um, so there isn't a lot of, quote-unquote, acting going on there. Um, to me, I, I didn't... I didn't resonate, or it didn't. Re- the, the topic didn't resonate so much with me, I guess. Hmm. What, what about the the direction? What about Chloe Zhao's job? Look, it was very solid. I've seen a few of her films. Mm-hmm. You know, she ha- she has a she has a point of view. She likes capturing Middle America. You know, these these grand vistas. You know, the the big skies. This is her thing, which is very nice. Nothing wrong with that. Um, I'd like to see her do something else. Well, she is going to do something else. She's going to be well. She is. She has already. It's already in the can. In November, um, uh, she's directing a Marvel film. It's coming out. Uh, what, what's happening? I mean, um, you know, in, in the macro sense, in that these. Asian and you know female uh, movie directors are there many of them now uh, and are they making a difference uh, you know in America I think these are just early days um, you know, we are seeing in, in the independent sphere a lot more people of color, and certainly we saw that at, at the Oscars. Well, we didn't see it yesterday at the Oscars because we weren't allowed to see it yesterday at the Oscars, but that's another story. Um, but, uh, you know, we are seeing more people of color, um, you know, coming to the, to the front positions in uh, the industry. So I think we are going to see more uh, Asians, more women, um, directing films and directing major films. They are directing films, but now they're going to be directing more major films that we are going to be able to see, that more people are going to be able to see. What, what do you make of the fact that it wasn't, uh, well, first of all, that it wasn't shown on, on Hong Kong television? And, and also the pretty disastrous viewing figures, I think, for the... Well, they've been know. going, look, they've been going down for mm. years. That's nothing new. Mm. And I think, you know, in this time of COVID, uh, first of all, the, the, the broadcast was delayed for a few months because of, the, because of COVID. Uh, and I think, you know, people are... Are, are exhausted. I know I'm exhausted. So I, I think we need to cut to the middle, middle a bit of slack this year. Um, Johnny uh, in an email says, um, I refer to your top of the hour news story regarding the Oscar winners. Uh, I'm all in favour of being politically correct, but why does the BBC refer to director Chloe Zhao as a person of colour? Now, you just did that as well. <laughs> she is. Okay, Johnny, well, Johnny says, why can't it simply describe her as Asian? I'm Hong Kong Chinese and have never been described as a person of colour. By categorising everyone who isn't white, whatever white means, as per- of people of colour, the BBC and other Western media are simply creating more division and segregation rather than promoting harmony and unity. RTHK isn't helping by broadcasting the BBC experts. It comes from Johnny. Any thoughts on that, Howard? Well, look, as you said, I said person of colour as well. Okay, so she's an Asian. She's both. And that's film critic Howard Elias speaking on our Backchat programme. Finally, we end this week on three with a look at what Steve James has been up to in his afternoon drive on Thursday. That's it from me for now. Over to Steve. I have a cunning plan which could get you out of this problem. The Steve James Thursday afternoon drive. Uh, Let's get ready to rumble! Oh, the factories may be roaring with the boom a lack a zoom a lack a wee 
But there isn't any roar when the clock strikes four. Everything stops for tea. Now I know just why Franz Schubert didn't finish his unfinished symphony. He might have written more, but the clock struck four and everything stops for tea. Tea break this afternoon celebrating the birthday of Tommy James and the Shondells. Had the 1966 hits Hanky Panky, the 1968 hit Moni Moni, and this one, I Think We're Alone Now. Sing along, everybody. Children behave. That's what they say when we're together. And watch how you play. They don't understand. And so we're running just as fast as we can. Yeah. 